Last week, I took a few moments to say about a few words about who we are as a church. I'd like to do that again today because January is a month when we uh, tend to see uh, more new folks coming to church than um, at other times during the year. And I think one of the best ways to learn about who we are as a church is by looking at what we call our vision frame. You'll see it on the screen. Think of the vision frame as a window frame through which you're looking into the future. And in the future, we have what we call Vision 2025. This is about a page and a half document. You can read it on our website. It's been much talked about, prayed over, uh, and it's what we hope and, and pray will be a reality for our church in the year 2025 because it's what we think would give him the greatest honor and the greatest glory. As you look around the edges of the frame on the right side, you see a very simple mission statement, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. That simply means that we hope that spiritual growth will occur in our lives individually and corporately to such a degree that we have a, a greater impact on the world around us, sharing the love and the truth of Jesus. At the bottom of the frame is what we think of as a map for spiritual growth our discipleship pathway. And then to the left of the frame are seven values. We talked last week a little bit about the Bible-centered value, and I'll just say a word this morning about the, the next two, being a church that's, that's prayer-fueled or empowered and spirit-led, and we're talking there about the Holy Spirit. These things become a reality when a church realizes its dependence upon God in prayer. If we have a theme verse for our church here at River Oaks, I think it would be Psalm 127 and verse 1, which says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Only the Lord can really build his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, to the degree that we are praying and acknowledging, recognizing our dependence on the Holy Spirit to do the work of building a church, we are, I think, more in step with the Holy Spirit. So I'll stop there, but I'll invite you uh, to do two things. One is, is to go to our website and look at our Vision 2025 and maybe make a, print a copy and keep it in your Bible and join us in praying for these things to become a reality because they will only become a reality if the Holy Spirit working through his people brings it to pass. The other is if you're not a member of our church and want to get more connected, want to learn a little bit more about this, the best way to do it is through our connection or new member class. We're going to have the next one on two Wednesday nights in February the 5th and 12th and you can indicate interest in your hand, your card. Well, this morning we are continuing our um, trip through the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation. We're calling it one story, and we're looking at the, the unity of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Many people look at the Bible and don't see it as a unified whole. Some think the God of the Old Testament is completely unlike the God of the New Testament. But in reality, all scripture, Genesis to Revelation, has been inspired by God. All 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 
make up a unified whole with one great theme by one divine author revealing one great Savior, who is Jesus. Now, today we get to a part of the Bible uh, that's a pretty well-known story, the story of, of Noah's Ark. And um, we're going to consider how Noah and the building of the ark fit into this one great plan throughout Scripture. Now, this part of the Bible, Noah and the ark, Corey read a good uh, chunk of Genesis chapter 6 where the, the uh, account of Noah begins. This part of Scripture may seem to indicate that God really doesn't have uh, one great plan through Scripture. In fact, it may indicate that any plan that God had has failed or is failing because it sounds like God's deciding to wipe everybody out and just start over with, with one guy and his family, Noah and some of his family members. I think, however, that we will see that God is very much at work through this time to bring about his plan of salvation for people and we're going to begin to consider one of the hard questions in, in Scripture. And that is, why did God destroy his creation in Noah's time? Skeptics who don't believe Scripture is inspired by God all often point out certain uh, kind of recurring criticisms of Scripture. And one of the most often mentioned is this that God told the Israelites to kill people, to destroy the Canaanites in certain cases. And that seems a great contradiction with his teaching in the New Testament to turn the other cheek. We will deal with that question. As, as I've said before, we'll try to deal with these hard questions that come up in Scripture. I think it's very important that we do that in the church, in small groups, in Sunday school classes, because our kids, our students... They're going to go off to, to college or go off into the world, and they're going to be challenged with these very things. And if we can't deal with them in the church, they will not be prepared for these things. So we'll try to deal with them. So we'll consider this morning why God himself destroyed most of his creation in Noah's time. Genesis 6, Genesis 6 tells us very clearly that the wickedness of man was the reason, the impetus for this destruction of the world in Noah's time. Genesis 6 and verse 5, we read these words. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice these words now. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now think about that for a moment. God alone knows the thoughts of every person's heart. Only God. He knows our thoughts. And God observed in the world in Noah's time that every intention of the thoughts of every person was only evil all the time. Since Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, sin had immediately, sin and Satan that worked through sin, had immediately begun to corrupt the human race. Adam and Eve's uh, two sons, Cain and Abel, of course, we see in them the first murder. We begin to see 
murder. We begin to see violence. We begin to see this corruption in the world. It's almost as if Satan himself knew when God pronounced his curse on him in the Garden of Eden that ultimately there would come the seed of a woman who would crush his head, who would destroy his authority. It almost seems that Satan is doing all he can to destroy the human race and prevent that promise of God from coming about. And so the Lord sees the thought of every heart is only evil all the time. God and only God knows when a person or a group or a population is beyond any possibility of repentance. Only God knows that. And God knows when corruption will spread like a cancer. And there are times when God, like a skilled surgeon, will remove that corrupting disease to stop its spread. And that is why on occasion we see things in scripture like God telling the Israelites they've got to completely destroy people whose corruption is beyond any possibility of repentance. God alone knows the human heart. And God's judgment when he brings it is always perfect. Unlike the anger of us human beings, God's wrath is a holy thing. It is a pure thing. It is a perfect thing. It is always completely right in its justness. And we have to understand that. At the very beginning of Scripture, His wrath is holy, unlike us. Now, of course, many people don't grasp this. Last week I read a... Um, statement by the author of a book called The God Delusion, uh, an atheist who writes, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a malevolent bully. And I'll stop there. This is the way Many people view God. This past week, I was listening to Albert Moeller <clears throat> talking about an article that appeared uh, several days ago in the New York Times, a half-page editorial. It's a big editorial in the New York Times. The, the title of the article is, Why Do People Believe in Hell? And the subtitle is this, The Idea of Eternal Damnation is Neither Biblically, Philosophically, Nor Morally Justified. The author, David Bentley Hart, is described as a philosopher, scholar of religion, and cultural critic. There are so many things I disagree with in his article, it would take the rest of the morning to point them out. But he notes, no truly accomplished New Testament scholar believes that later Christianity's opulent mythology of God's eternal torture chamber is clearly present in the biblical text, is entirely absent from St. Paul's writings. That's not correct. I looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7, and 9 to see that. He said, neither is it found in other New Testament epistles. I looked at Jude verse 4 and saw that. He says, even the frightening language used by Jesus in the Gospels when read in the original Greek fails to deliver the infernal dogmas we casually assume to be there. That's not true. Jesus talked about hell a lot. 
He actually implies, as is said in the subtitle, that the idea of hell is not even morally justified. Hell's an unpleasant thing. I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to think about it. It gives me a terrible feeling inside when I think about people I know who do not believe in God and oppose the, 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 the teaching of his kingdom. That if they don't repent, they'll go there. But it's clear in Scripture. And so these ideas are just examples of how people find such difficulty believing that God could have wrath, that he could be just. But we have to grasp in the very beginning that God's wrath is a holy and very pure thing. I agree with author Sam Storms, who writes the words we see on the screen in contrast to what these last two authors I have quoted have said. Pastor Storm says, the problem isn't that God is evil. The problem is that we are. It isn't that God has mistreated us, but that we have mistreated him. We have little sense of the transcendent beauty, moral purity, and infinite righteousness of the creator. We saw last week that the real starting place for all this is to embrace and understand the love of God when he created human beings for fellowship with himself talked about the perfect love in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's desire as an overflow of that love to share his love with human beings he created to commune and communicate with himself. But we must also understand that God is infinitely, perfectly holy, beautiful in his holiness and in his glory. And we've got to start with these basic truths about God because unless we embrace these, we will get off base very, very quickly in our theology. I think what happens is this. Look at it in the, the form of a little chart. A failure to understand God's holiness leads to a failure to understand his wrath and a failure to understand his judgment. And when that's done, there is a failure to understand God's grace and our salvation through Jesus. Unless we appreciate the holiness of God and how our sin is an offense to him, we really can't appreciate the incredible sacrifice in the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth to take our place, to bring us back, to redeem us, to save us. In Noah's time, it was the wickedness of man it was the reason for God's destruction of the world. Every thought, every intent of the heart, as God saw it, was only evil all the time. However, Noah. Noah found favor. Grace. Hebrew word here could easily be translated grace. It's the first time it appears in the Bible. It's a gift of God. God's favor, his grace. And in that favor and grace, Noah walked with God. God considered Noah, by his faith, righteous. Now, had Noah been taught anything about God at this point? I think he had, because we can look at Noah's ancestors for a moment. In Genesis 5, you'll see a passage on the screen that gives us a little insight <coughs> Excuse me, into that. These are Noah's ancestors. First one is Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
you've heard of Methuselah, a person in the Bible who lived the longest. Um, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that's incredible. Apparently, this man walked so closely with God and had such love for God that he just walked on with God into God's eternal glory and in heaven and didn't uh, physically die as others do. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. I think he's the oldest given us in the Bible. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Now the name Noah means rest or comfort. He fathered Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. Now think about this for a minute. He's got this great grandfather Enoch who is a close walker with God. And now Lamech, his father, is reciting from the curse of Genesis chapter 3. That's the curse where God pronounced on the serpent that the seed of a woman will come and he will crush your head. He will destroy your authority. That is, many Bible commentators agree, the first prediction in Scripture of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, who would deliver entirely from Satan's power and bring about our salvation. And it is in the context of that curse that here Lamech, Noah's father, saying, out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one, he's talking about Noah now, will bring us relief. Noah, whose name means comfort or rest, is going to play a role in the preservation of God's people so that eventually the fulfillment of God's great promise is going to come. And so, God told Noah to build an ark, a really big boat. The picture on the screen hangs in our hallway. All of you seen that before? Seen it in our hallway? It's, it's a beautiful uh, work of art by Jeff Johnson, who is an incredible artist. Um, we don't want you to touch it. That's why tables are in front of him. And, and the, the artwork across the hall is an uh, artwork of Isaiah preaching in the marketplace, also by Jeff uh, Johnson. Um, it's a big boat. And what I love about this uh, work of art is that it gives you an idea of how massive, how massive the ark was. Commentator James Boyce, in writing about this part of Genesis, suggests that Noah was building the ark for over 100 years. Over 100 years. Now, I couldn't exactly follow his math in this, but, but when, you, when, when you hear about Noah <clears throat> fathering his three sons, the, the Bible tells he's 500. When he goes in the ark, he's 600. <clears throat> so it does seem evident there were many decades spent in building the ark. So can you imagine Noah in the type of world and culture he's in, the people around him who are probably living in far worse morality than any, anything we can imagine, and here he is following the directive of God to build this massive boat 
Elsewhere, Noah's called a herald of righteousness. It's like he's preaching righteousness through this example. And he's at it for, for not one or two or three years, but decades, possibly up to 100 years. Noah found favor with God. I suspect the building of the ark was an incredible challenge in his culture and among those people. But Noah's faith is shown by his obedience to God, and ultimately it led to salvation for his household and inclusion in God's one-story plan. Excuse me. As you see in the next verse from Genesis 6, 22, Noah did this. Noah did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then later we read, the Lord shut him in. God himself shut the door of the ark to protect Noah. I mentioned that the New Testament calls Noah a herald of righteousness. And I think it says that because Noah in the building of the ark was actually preaching something. And there's this massive visual witness of God's salvation through the flood that Noah is working on for all of these years. And I think that we could consider the ark as a type or shadow of the salvation that God would one day bring through the Messiah, through Jesus, as Noah and his family were saved in the ark, there would come a day when all people would be saved from their sins, through their faith in Christ and by being in Christ. And so, Noah became a key part of God's one-story plan, but there's more to it. In the, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, we have a, a genealogy of Jesus. <clears throat> Begins in verse 23, Jesus began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet. And you get this long list of names. But as we get to verse 36, we read, the son of Shem, the son of Noah the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, etc., the son of Seth, the son of, son of Adam, the son of God. We find Noah in the genealogy of Christ. And I mentioned that many people see the ark as a kind of a shadow type of God's salvation that points in some way to his coming salvation in Christ. Noah being saved in the ark, believers being saved by being in Christ. And we find the Apostle Peter writing these words For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And I, I suppose if it took 100 years, God's patience really did wait in the days of Noah with what was going on in the world. 
And yet there was this visible witness before people of this ark being built in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now I have to say, this is not a passage that I feel like I really understand, but it hints at this, this uh, link with the ark, this pointing ahead to God's salvation. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Here's what I think we should understand about the account of Noah. Judgment is a reality. It is of God's holy, perfect, pure nature that judgment for sin exists. But rescue, rescue is also reality. By simply believing what God says to be true and finding our salvation in the truth of what he has said. This is what Noah did. And this is what believers in Jesus do. After God took Noah and his family safely through the flood, the waters subsided and they, uh, they're ready to come out of the ark. God gives a sign and it's a sign of the rainbow. God says, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. <coughs> this picture was shared uh, with me after our GPS 55 group returned from seeing the Ark Encounter. And um, what an incredible picture uh, over this replica of the Ark with a rainbow uh, over it, a reminder of the faithfulness of God uh, to his, his great promises. So as we reflect on Noah and his place in the, the one story of God, reminds us that God is the great judge, but he is also the great savior for all those who are in Christ. When we recognize our need, that is our sin, our need for God's forgiveness, and we believe that Jesus meets that need through the shedding of his blood and the giving of his life on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, when we embrace by faith Jesus said his saving work the way Noah embraced the truth of God's word and obeyed him. When we do that, we are in Christ. And as Noah and his family were saved in the ark, we're saved from judgment by being in Christ. So my hope is that we, every one of us here today, will be like Noah. That we will believe what God says. That we will obey and turn and follow him as our Lord and we'll be part, we'll be part of his one-story plan. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, thank you for your faithfulness, your loving kindness, your goodness to us. Father, we, um, we ask that you work among us in this moment that you would reveal to every person here 
the reality of the salvation that you provide through Jesus Christ. Father, how we thank you that we don't have to earn our place with you in eternity by living perfect lives because we cannot. But yet, Lord, you let our judgment fall on Jesus, the Lamb of God. And we thank you for your mercy. We embrace by faith what Christ has done for us. Help us to follow you faithfully and to fulfill our role in this one-story plan by, by being heralds of righteousness like Noah, telling people about Jesus and the gift of righteousness that comes through our faith in him. We ask this, Father. And we ask this in the great name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.